Hello, I'm Byron Reese. I'm the host of Voices in AI. If you're interested in the topics we discuss in these podcasts, I'd urge you to check out my newest book. It's called The Fourth Age. It's about conscious computers and artificial intelligence and the future of work and jobs and all of the topics we cover here on Voices in AI. It comes out uh, next spring, but you can pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever else you order books from. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Tasha Nagamane. She's a PhD student at Columbia University. She holds an undergrad degree from Brown and a master's in electrical engineer from Columbia. Her research is in neural net processing of speech and language and the potential applications of speech processing systems through, here's the interesting part, biologically inspired deep neural network models. As if that weren't enough to fill up a day, Tasha is also the CTO of Joyce Labs, an AI healthcare company, which I'm sure we will chat about in a few minutes. Welcome to the show, Tasha. Hi. So your, your specialty, it looks like coming all the way up, is electrical engineering, electrical engineering. How, do you, how is that, how do you find yourself now in something which is often regarded as a, as a computer science discipline, that is artificial intelligence and speech recognition? Um, yes, it's actually a bit of an interesting um, meandering journey how I got here. My undergrad um, specialty was actually in physics. Um, and uh, when I decided to go to grad school, I was very interested in, you know, I found myself, I took a class and found myself very interested in neuroscience. So when I joined Columbia, um, the reason I'm actually in a, the electrical engineering department is that my advisor um, is in EE, but what, you know, my research and what my lab focuses on is really um, in neuroscience and computational neuroscience, as well as neural networks and machine learning. So um, in that way, I think what we do is very cross-disciplinary. So in this, this way, the exact department, I guess, may be a bit misleading. One of my best friends in college was a double E. And he, uh, he said that every time he went over to like his grandmother's house, she would try to get him to fix like the ceiling fan or something. Do you ever have anybody uh, uh, assume you're proficient with a screwdriver as well? Yes, that actually happens to me uh, quite frequently. I think I had... Um, one of my friend's landlords one time when I said I was doing electrical engineering um, thought that that actually meant electricians, so was asking me if I knew about how to fix light bulbs and things like that. Well, let's start now talking about uh, your research, if you would. What do you, you I, I, in your introduction, I stressed biologically inspired deep neural networks. What, what do you think, do, do we study the brain and try to do what it does in machines, or are we inspired by it, or we figure out what the brain's doing and do something completely different? Like, why do you emphasize biologically inspired DNNs? That's actually a good question, and I think the answer to that is that, you know, researchers or people doing machine learning all over the world actually do all of those things. Um, so the reason that I was stressing a biologically inspired well, you could argue that, first of all, all neural networks are in some way biologically inspired. Now, whether or not they are a good biologically inspired model is another question altogether. Um, but I think a lot of the, you know, all of the, you know, a lot of the big sort of advancements that comes, like a convolutional neural network was modeled basically directly off of the visual system. Um, so that being said, uh, you know, despite the fact that there are a lot of these biological inspirations for, you know, or sources of inspiration for these models, um, 
there's many ways in which, in which, you know, these models actually fail to live up to, you know, the way that our brains actually work. Um, so, you know, one of the research focuses that I had, um, by saying biologically inspired, I really just mean a different kind of take on a neural network where we try to basically find something wrong with the network that, you know, perhaps a human can do um, that a little bit more intelligently and try to bring this into the artificial neural network. Um, so for my research specifically, uh, one issue with current neural networks is that usually, unless you keep training them, um, they have no way to really change themselves or adapt to new situations. But that's not what happens with humans, right? We continuously take inputs, we learn, and we don't even need supervised labels to do so. So one of the things that I was trying to do was to try to draw from this inspiration to find a way to kind of learn in an unsupervised way to improve your performance in a speech recognition task. So just a minute ago, when you and I were chatting before we started recording, uh, a siren came by where you are. And the interesting thing is, I could still understand everything you were saying, even though that siren was arguably as odd as you were. What, what's going on there? Am I subtracting out the siren? How, how do I still understand you? Because, you know, I ask this for the obvious reason that, that computers can go really struggle with that, right? Right. Um, yeah, and actually how this works in the brain is a very open question and people don't really know how it's done. Um, this is actually an active research area of some of my colleagues. And there's a lot of different models that people have um, for how this works. And, you know, it could be that there's some sort of filter in your brain that, you know, starts, you know, trying to recognize basically that sorts you know, speech from the noise, for example, or a relevant signal from an irrelevant one. Um, but how this happens and, you know, exactly where this happens is pretty unknown. But you're right, um, you know, that's an interesting point you make, is that machines have a lot of trouble with this. Um, and so that's kind of one of the inspirations uh, behind these types of, behind these types of research, because you know, currently in, in machine learning, we don't really know the best way to do this. And so we tend to rely on large amounts of data and large amounts of labeled data or, you know, parallel data, data corrupted with noise intentionally. However, this is definitely not how our brain is doing it. Um, but how that's happening, I don't think anyone really knows. So... Let me ask you a different question along those same lines. Whenever I call my airline of choice, I will... So I read these stories all the time that say that um, AI has approached human quality in trans, uh, transcribing speech. So I see that. And then I call my airline of choice. Again, I will not name them. And I, 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 um, it says, what is your frequent flyer number? You know, it's got color ID. It should know that. But anyway, uh, mine unfortunately has an A, an H, and an 8 in it. So you can just imagine A H A H eight 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 H, right? It never gets it. So I have to get up, turn the fan off in my office. It keeps it cool. Take my headset off, hold the phone up, say it over and over again. So two questions: Why? What's the disconnect between what I read and my daily experience? I actually, I'll give you that question, and then I have my follow-up in a moment. Oh, sure. So you're saying, um, are you asking why it can't recognize your... Uh, but I still read these stories that say it can do as good well, of a job as a human. Well, um, <laughs> so usually what you, um, you know, when you say, oh, for example, I think recently there was a story published about Microsoft um, coming up with a system that had reached human parity 
in speech recognition. Um, well, really, you know, usually when, when you're saying that, um, you have it on a very, a somewhat artificial task. So you'll have a, you know, a predefined data set. Um, and then, you know, test the machine against the humans. But that doesn't necessarily correspond to a real world setting. They're not really doing speech recognition out in the wild. And I think for you, you have an even more difficult problem because although, you know, it's only frequent flyer numbers, um, you know, there's no language model there. There's no context for what your next number should be. So it's very hard for that kind of system to self-correct, um, which is, which is a bit problematic, but yeah. So I think I'm hearing two things. The first thing, it sounds like you're saying they're all cooking the books as it were. They're, the, the story is saying something that I interpret one way that isn't real. If you dig down deep, it's different. But the other thing you seem to be saying is even though there's only 36 things I could be saying, because there's no natural flow to that language, it can't say, oh, the first word he said was, the and the third word was run was that middle word boy or toy a ran i guess and so it could say oh well toys don't run but boys do therefore it must be the boy ran and you're saying is, is that what i'm reading uh, what i'm hearing you say is that a good ai system is going to look contextually and get clues from the word usage in a way that the frequent flyer system doesn't right yeah, um, exactly. I think this, this is actually one of the fundamental limitations of at least acoustic modeling or, you know, the acoustic part of speech recognition, which is that you are completely limited um, by what the person has said. So, you know, maybe it could be that you're not pronouncing your T at the end of eight very, um, very emphatically. And the, and the issue is, is that there's nothing you can really do to fix that without some sort of, you know, language-based information to fix it. Um, you know, and then on the other hand, you know, to answer your first question, I wouldn't necessarily call it cooking the books, um, but it is a fact that, you know, really the data that you have to train on and test on and to evaluate your metrics on, um, often almost never really matches up with real world data. Um, and this is a huge problem in, you know, the speech domain. It's a, it's a very well-known issue. So is it also possible that if you take my 8H and A example, mm -hmm. um, which you're saying that's a really tricky problem without context, is it also the case that if you took 100 random people, 100 English speakers, but one could be from Scotland and one could be Australian and one could be from the East Coast, one could be from the South of the United States, that the overlap between how they say those letters may be that maybe the, the range of how eight is said in all those different places is so wide that it overlaps with how H is said in other ones of those places. So in other words, it's a literally insoluble problem. Is that possible? Um, it is. It is. I would say it is possible. Um, I mean, so one of the issues is then you should have a separate model for you know different dialects so actually at the at the root of these you know i don't want to dive too far into the weeds with this but at the root of a speech recognition system um is often things like uh their you know the fundamental linguistic or phonetic unit as a phoneme which is like the smallest speech sound and people even argue about whether or not 
that these actually exist, what they actually mean, um, whether or not this is a good unit to use um, when modeling speech. That being said, there are some, um, you know, there's a lot of research going underway that's going, you know, for example, sequence to sequence models or other types of models that are actually trying to kind of bypass this sort of issue, like, you know, instead of, instead of having all of these separate components, modeling all of the acoustics separately, can we go directly from someone's speech and from there exactly get text? And maybe, you know, through this unsupervised approach, it's possible to learn all these different things about dialects and to, you know, try to inherently learn these things. But that is still a very open question. And currently those systems are not quite tractable yet. I'm only going to ask one more question along these, and I would love to... to I could geek out on this stuff all day long because I think about it a lot. Well, real quickly, do you think you're at the very beginning of this field or do you feel it's a pretty advanced field? Just uh, the speech recognition part. Uh, speech recognition? Mm. I, think, I think we're nearing the end of speech recognition, to be honest. Um, I think the really, really interesting part, you know, you could say, you know, I think in some ways speech is fundamentally limited. You are limited by the signal that you are provided and your job is to transcribe that. Now, um, you know, and so where speech recognition stops is where natural language processing begins. And as, as everyone knows, language is infinite. You can do anything with it. Um, any permutation of, you know, words, sequences of words. Um, so I really think that natural language processing um, is, is really kind of the future of this field. And I know that even, you know, a lot of people in speech are starting to try to incorporate more advanced language models into, into their research. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So I, I just ran an article where, um, on GigaOM where, I have an Amazon Alexa device on my desk and I have a Google Assistant on my desk. And what I've noticed right away is that they answer questions differently. Factual questions. How many minutes are in a year? Or who designed the American flag? They have different answers. And both of them are because, you can say because of an ambiguity in the language, but if, that, if this is an ambiguity, then all language is naturally ambiguous. So the, the minutes in a year was... One, one gave you the minutes in 365.24 days, a solar year, and one gave you the minutes in a calendar year. And the, uh, with regard to the flag, one said Betsy Ross, and one said the person who designed the 50-star configuration on the current flag. And so we're a long way away from the machine saying, well, wait a second, do you mean the current flag or the original flag? Or are you talking about a solar year or a calendar year? I mean, like, we're really far away from that, aren't we? Yeah, I think that's definitely, uh, that's definitely true. Um, you know, people really don't understand how even humans process language, how we disambiguate uh, different phrases, how we find out what are the relevant questions to ask to disambiguate these things. Um, so that's obviously people are working on that. But um, I think we are quite far from true natural language understanding. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting question. There were a lot of them. Who invented the light bulb? How many countries are there in the world? Um, I mean, the list was endless. I didn't have to look around to find them. It, it was almost everything I asked. Uh, not, not, I mean, what's two plus two obviously is, is different, but they, they were a plenty. And 
So to, to broaden that question, though, don't you think if, if, there were, if we were to build an AGI, an artificial general intelligence, an AI as versatile as a human, as a human that's table sticks. Like, you have to be able to do that much, right? Oh, of course. Um, I mean, I think that one of the things that, you know, or at least one, one of the defining things or things that makes human intelligence unique is the ability to understand language and an understanding of grammar and all of this, you know, it's one of the most fundamental things that makes us human and intelligent. Um, so I think, yeah, to have an artificial general intelligence, it would be completely vital um, and necessary to be able to to do this sort of disambiguation. Um, well, let me, let me ratchet it up even another one. There's a, there's a famous thought experiment called the, the Chinese room problem. And uh, for the benefit of the listener, it's, um, the setup is this. There's a person in a room. He doesn't speak any Chinese, but the room is full of these huge number of these very specialized books. And people slide messages under the door to him, they're written in Chinese. And he has this method where he looks up the first character and binds the book with that on the spine and goes to the second character and the third and works his way through until he gets to a book that says, you know, write this down. And he copies these symbols. Again, he doesn't know what the symbols are. He slides the message back out and the person getting it, it's a perfect Chinese answer. It's, you know, brilliant, it rhymes, it's, it's great. And so the the thought experiment is, does the man understand Chinese? And the, the, the point of it is that that's all a computer does, right? It just runs this deterministic program and it never understands what it's talking about. But it, it doesn't know if it's about cholera or coffee beans or what have you. So my question is this, for an AGI to exist, does it need to understand the question in a way that's different than kind of how we've been using that word up until now? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I think that they, yeah, to have an artificial general intelligence, um, you know, I think that the, the computer would have to, in a way, understand the question. Now, that being said, what is the nature of understanding the question? How do they really you know, how do we even think is a question that I don't think even we know the answer to. Um, so it's a little bit difficult to say exactly what's the minimum requirement that you would need for some sort of artificial general intelligence, because um, as it stands now, I don't know, you know, maybe someone smarter than me knows the answer, but I don't even know if I really understand how I understand things, if that makes sense to you. So where, what do you do with that? Do you say, well, that's just part of the course. There's a lot of things in this universe we don't understand. We're going to figure it out, and then we'll build an AGI. Or does it suggest something to you about an AGI that may be that something's going on that's very different than how we how – we, is, is the question of understanding just a very straightforward scientific question, do you think? Or it, is it a metaphysical question that – that we don't really even know how to pose or answer? I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, this question is a very, it's a good question. And, you know, if we're going about it the right way, um, is something that's, you know, remains to be seen. But I think one way that we can try to ensure that we're not straying off the path is really by going back to these biologically inspired systems. Because we know that, you know, at the end of the day, our brains 
are made out of, you know, neurons, synapses, connections. And, um, you know, I don't think there's nothing very unique about this. It's physical matter. There's no theoretical reason why a computer cannot do the same computations. So if we can really, really understand, you know, how our brains are working, what the computations it performs are, how we have consciousness, then I think in this way, um, we can start to get at those questions. Now that being said, you know, I think uh, in terms of, you know, where neuroscience is today, we really have a very limited idea of how our brains actually work. Um, but I think it's through this, this avenue that we stand the highest chance of success of making this sort of trying to emulate. Um, you know, well, that's, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. I think that's a fascinating topic. So the, the brain has 100 billion neurons um, that, that somehow come together and do what they do. There's something called um, a nematode worm, arguably the most successful animal on the planet. 10% of all living things, all animals on the planet are these little worms. They have, I think, 327 neurons in their brain. And there's been a, an effort underway for 20 years to model that brain. 327 neurons in a computer and make a nematode worm, a digitally living nematode worm. And even the people who've worked on that project for 20 years don't even know if that's possible. So I put the question to you, is it possible that we say, well, because what, what I was hearing you say is, you know, once we figure out kind of what a neuron does, we can, we can you know, this reductionist view of the brain, we can build artificial neurons and build general intelligence but what if every neuron in your brain uh is has the complexity of a supercomputer like what if they are incredibly complicated things that that have things going on at the quantum scale that we are just so far away from understanding is that a tenable hypothesis and doesn't that suggest well maybe we should think about intelligence a different way because we're never going to get there if we if, if a neuron's as complicated as a supercomputer we're never going to get there that's um that's true i am familiar um, with that research so i think that there's a couple ways that you can um do this type of study because you know for example trying to you know you know for example model a neuron at the scale of its you know ion channels and individual you know individual connections is one thing, but there are many, many scales um, upon which your brain or, you know, any sort of neural system works. So, um, for example, I think, and, you know, I think that there are, um, to really get this understanding of how the brain works, you, you know, it's great to look at this very micro scale, but it also helps to kind of go macro and say, okay, how, you know, instead of modeling every every single component um, to try to, you know, for example, take groups of neurons and say, how are they communicating together? How are they communicating with different parts of the brain? Um, and doing this, you know, for example, that's usually in general how human neuroscience works and humans are the ones with the intelligence. Um, if you can really figure out, you know, on a larger scale to the point where you can simplify some of these computations and instead of understanding every single spike, perhaps understanding the general behavior or the general computation that's um, you know, happening inside the brain, then maybe it will serve to simplify this um, a little bit. So do you think that kind of what's your gut then? Like what, what, 
where, where do you come down on all of that? Are we five years, 50 years, or 500 years away from cracking that nut? Really understanding how we understand, understanding how we would build a machine that would understand all of this kind of nuance that we're talking about, which is really the core of the problem of who designed the American flag, right? It's really, that's at the core. How, how far away do you, do you think you're going to live to see us make that machine that's like, well, wait a minute, you know? Right. I would, I would be thrilled if I lived to see that, that machine. Um, I'm not sure that I will, um, you know, exactly saying when this will happen is a bit hard for me to predict, but I know that we would need massive improvements, probably algorithmically, probably also in our hardware as well, um, because, you know, these true intelligence is massively computational. Um, and I think that we would need to, you know, I think it's going to take a lot of research to get there, but it's hard to say exactly when that would happen. Do you keep up with the um, Human Brain Project, the European initiative to do kind of what you were talking about before, which is be so inspired by human brains as to build learn everything we can from that and build some kind of a computational equivalent? Um, a little bit, a little bit. Do you have any thoughts on like, like if, if you were of, of a betting sort, whether that will be successful or not? Um, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure if that is really gonna, if that's really gonna work out that well. Like you said before, there was the whole, um, I think currently given our current, you know, hardware algorithms, our abilities to probe the human brain. I think it's very difficult to, you know, make these very sweeping claims about, yes, we will have, you know, X amount of understanding about how these systems work. Um, so I'm not sure if it's going to be, you know, successful in all the ways it's supposed to be, but I think it's a really valuable thing to do whether or not you really achieve the stated goal. So you mentioned consciousness earlier. So consciousness, uh, again, for the, for the listeners, uh, is something people often say we don't know what it is. We know exactly what it is. We just don't know how it is that it happens. So what it is is that we experience things. We feel things. We, you know, we, we, we do that. We have uh, qualia. You know, we experience qualia. Things, we know what pineapple tastes like. Um, where do you think, do you have any theories on, on consciousness? Like, where do you think it comes from? And I'm really interested in, do we need consciousness in order to solve some of these AI problems that we all are so eager to solve? Do we need something that, that can experience as opposed to just sense? Interesting question. I think that... Um... You know, that is a good question. I think that there's a lot of open research on how consciousness works, what it really means, how it helps us, um, you know, do this type of cognition. Uh, that being said, you know, so we know, we know what it is, but really how it works or how this would manifest itself in an artificial intelligence system is really sort of beyond our grasp right now. So in a way, um, you can think, for example, that a machine, you know, I don't know how much true consciousness it needs because, you know, you can say, for example, having a type of memory may be part of your consciousness, um, you know, being aware, learning things. Um, 
but I don't think we have yet, um, I don't think we have yet enough really understanding of how this works to really say for sure. All righty, fair enough. Uh, one more question and I'll, I'll, I'll pull the clock back 30 years and let's talk about the here and now. Um, but my last question is, do you think that, what would it mean for, could a computer ever feel something? Like, could a computer ever feel pain? You could build a sensor that mm-hmm. tells the computer it's on fire, but, right. but could a computer ever feel something? Could it, could it, do you think? Could we build such a machine? Um, I think that it's possible. Um, so like I said before, there's, you know, there's really no reason why, you know, what our brain does is it's really a very advanced biological computer. There's really no reason why you shouldn't be able to, you know, feel pain. It is a sensation, um, but it's really just the transfer of information. So I think that it is, it is possible. Um, now that being said, how this would manifest or, you know, what, what you know a computer's reaction would be to pain or what would happen i'm not i'm not sure what that would be but i think it's definitely possible fair enough so uh i mentioned in your introduction that you're the cto of an ai company Troyce labs and I, I the only setup i made was that it was a healthcare company tell us a little more what what challenge that the Troyce labs is trying to solve and uh what what the hope is and what what your present challenges are and kind of the state of where you're at. Sure. Um, so Droyce is a healthcare company that uses artificial intelligence to help provide basically solutions or, you know, artificial intelligence solution to hospitals and healthcare providers. So one of the main things that we're focusing right now is to try to help doctors choose the right treatment for their patients. Um, and this means things like, for example, you come in, Maybe you're sick, you have a cough, you have pneumonia, let's say, and you need an antibiotic. What we try to do is to make sure that, you know, we, given an antibiotic, we try to predict whether or not this treatment will be effective for you, um, and also whether or not it'll have any sort of adverse event on you. So both try to get people healthy and keep them safe. Um, you know, and so this is, this is really kind of what we're focusing on at the moment trying to make a sort of artificial brain for healthcare that can really, shall we say, augment the intelligence of the doctors to try to make sure that, you know, people stay, stay healthy. Um, and I think that healthcare is a really interesting sphere in which to use artificial intelligence because um, currently the technology is not really, um, it's not very widespread because of the difficulty in working with hospital and, you know, medical data. So I think it's a really interesting uh, opportunity. So let's talk about that for a minute. Where, uh, AIs are generally only as good as the data we train them with. How, how do you get a... Because I know that whenever I have some symptom, I type it into the search engine of choice, and it tells me I have a terminal illness. It just happens all the time. And in reality, of course, whatever that terminal illness is, there is a one in 5,000 chance that I have that, but then there's also a 99% chance I have whatever you know, much more common benign thing. How are you thinking about how do you get enough data so that you can build these statistical models and, sure. and so forth? Um, so actually what we, you know, we're a, a B2B company. So we actually have partnerships with around 10 hospitals right now. And they have, um, what we do is 
get big data dumps from, from them of actual electronic health records. And so, you know, this is, you know, what we try to do is actually use real patient records, like millions of patient records that we obtain directly from our hospitals. And that's how we really are able to get enough data to make these types of predictions. How accurate does that data need to be? Because it doesn't have to be perfect, obviously. How accurate does it need to be to be good enough to, to be able to provide meaningful assistance to the doctor? So that is actually one of the big challenges, um, especially in this type of space. So um, in healthcare, it's a bit hard to say what is, you know, which data is good enough because it's very, very common. I mean, actually one of the hallmarks of clinical or medical data is that it will, you know, by default be contain many, many missing values. You never have the full story on any given patient. Additionally, it's very common to have things like errors. Um, you know, there's unstructured text in your medical record that very often contains mistakes or just, you know, insane sentence fragments that don't really make sense to anyone um, but a doctor. And this is really um, one of the things that we work really hard on, where a lot of times AI, <clears throat> traditional AI methods may fail, but um, we basically spend a lot of time trying to work with this data in different ways, come up with noise robust sort of pipelines that can really um, <clears throat> that can really make this work. Well, I, I would love to hear more detail about that because I'm sure it's full of things like patient says their eyes water whenever they eat potato chips. And you know, that's <laughs> like a data point. And it's like, well, what do you do with that? Like how, so th if that is, the, you know, a big problem, what, Tell us what, what some of the ways around it are, maybe in, in a way that w we can understand. Sure. Um, so what we try to do is, you know, I mean, I'm sure like I've seen, you see a lot of crazy stuff in these health records. Um, but what we try to do is instead of based on anything, um, biasing our models by doing anything in a rule-based manner, we make sure that um, we use the fact that we have big data, we have a lot of data points to try to really come up with um, robust models <clears throat> so that essentially, um, you know, we don't really have to worry about all that, all, that crazy, all that crazy stuff in there about potato chips and eyes watering. And so what we actually um, end up doing is basically we take our patients' health records and we take these many, many millions of, um, you know, individual electronic health records. And we also try to combine it with outside sources of information. And this is kind of one of the ways that we can try to make sure that we can really augment, um, really augment the data in our health record to make sure that, you know, we're getting really the correct insights about it. So for your example, for example, you said my eyes water when I eat potato chips. What we end up doing is taking that sort of, you know, that sort of thing and in an automatic way, searching, searching um, sources of public information, for example, clinical trials information or medical published medical literature. And we try to find, for example, clinical trials or papers about, for example, the side effects of eating, rubbing your eyes while eating potato chips. Now, of course, that's a ridiculous example, but you, you know what I mean. Um, and so by aug augmenting these public and this private data together, we really try to create this setup where um, we can try to get the maximum amount of information out of this kind of messy, difficult to work with data. And then we can, um, yeah. 
But do you think that we, our, our, um, the kinds of data you have that at least are solid data points are how, how old is the patient? What's their gender? Or do they have a fever? Do they have aches and pains? I mean, it's very coarse level stuff, but like, um, I'm regretting using the potato chip example because now I'm kind of stuck with it. Uh, but but it, a potato chip is made of a potato, which is a tuber, which is a, a nightshade. And there may be some really, and that may be the answer, right? That night, uh, an allergic reaction to nightshades that has so many levels removed from these very few. So I guess I'm saying it's, if we have this incredibly, we have in theory, uh, you said language is infinite, but health is sort of like near that, right? Like any number of interplays of any numbers of, of, of everything. There's so many potential things something could be, and yet so few uh, data points that we must try to, to draw. It, it would be like if I said, I know a person who's... Um, six foot four, 27 years old and born in Chicago, what's their middle name? Sure. And it's like, well, how do you, how do you even narrow it down to a set of middle names? Right, right. Okay, I think I understand what you're saying. Um, something, you know, this is obviously, you know, a challenge, but one of the ways that we kind of do this is, I mean, you know, the first, the first thing is, you know, our, you know, our artificial intelligence, it's really intended for doctors and not the patients. Although, you know, we were just talking about AGI and when, when it will, you know, happen. And the reality is we're not there yet. Um, so really, you know, part of our system, although we try to make these predictions and we can do it, um, it's also under the supervision of, you know, a doctor. So that in, you know, in that case, um, they can make sure that, you know, they're really also the ones really looking at these predictions and trying to make sure and pull out relevant things. Now you mentioned, for example, there's the structured data, for example, your age, your weight, maybe your sex, your medications, and this is structured, but then you mentioned that maybe the important thing <clears throat> is in the text or is in the unstructured data. Um, so in this case, one of the things that we try to do and is one of the main focuses of what we do is to try to use natural language processing and using NLP to really make sure that we're processing this um, unstructured data or this text in a way to really come up with a very robust numerical representation of the important things. So of course you can mine this information or mine this text to try to understand, for example, maybe let's say this is just an example. You have a patient who has some sort of allergy, and it's only written in this text, right? Um, in that case, you need a system to really go through this text with a fine-tooth comb and try to really pull out, you know, risk factors for this patient, um, relevant things about, you know, their health and, you know, their medical history that may be important. So is, is it not the case that diagnosing, if, if you just said, here is a person who manifests certain symptoms and I want to diagnose what they have, that, that may be the hardest problem possible compared to where we've seen success, which is like, here is a chest X-ray 
this is we have a very binary question to ask does this person have a tumor or do they not here's ten thousand with a tumor here's a hundred thousand without a tumor that that i get it but is it possible that we're again you know will we live to see i mean is it the cold or the a flu like that would be an ai kind of thing because but an expert system could do that um and so I'm, I'm kind of curious, aspirationally, tell me what you think. And, and then I would love to ask, what would an ideal world look like? What would we do to collect data in an ideal world? But just with the here and now, aspirationally, what do you think is as much as we can hope for? Is that, you, is that the model produces 64 things that this patient may have rank ordered like a search engine would do from most likely to least likely. And the doctor can kind of skim down it and look for something that catches his or her eye. Is that as far as we can go right now? Or what do you think in terms of general diagnosing of, of ailments? Um, sure. Well, I think, I mean, so actually what we focus on currently is really on the treatment, not on the diagnosis. I think the diagnosis is a more difficult problem. And of course, we really want to get into that in the future. But um, that is actually somewhat more of a, of a challenging sort of, um, it's a very challenging sort of thing to do. Um, that being said, um, what you mentioned, you know, saying, here's a list of things, let's make some predictions of it, is actually a thing, um, you know, what, that we currently do in terms of um, treatments for patients. Um, so, for example, one example thing that we've done is actually built a system that can predict um, surgical complications for patients. So you imagine, let's just say you have a patient that is 60 years old and is mildly septic and may need some sort of procedure. So what we can actually do is, you know, for example, there may be a couple of alternative procedures that can be given or a non-surgical intervention that can help them manage their condition. And so actually what we can do is sort of uh, predict what will happen with each of these different treatments, what is the likelihood it will be successful, as well as weighing this against the risk options. And in this way, we can really help the doctor choose what sort of treatment that they should give this person. And it gives them some sort of actionable insight that can actually help them, you know, get their patients healthy. Um, of course, in the future, I think it would be um, amazing to have some sort of end-to-end -end system that can, you know, a patient comes in and you can just get all the information and it can diagnose them, treat them, get them better. But we're definitely nowhere near that yet. So recently, IBM, you know, made, well, a few months ago, IBM made news that Watson had um, prescribed treatment for cancer patients that was largely identical to what the doctors did as well, but had the added benefit that in, in a third of the cases found additional treatment options because it had virtue of being trained on a quarter million, a quarter million medical journals. Is that the kind of thing that, that's like real here today um, that we will expect to see more things like that? I see. Um, yeah, no, that's definitely a very, very exciting thing. Um, and I think that's great to see. Um, so one of the things that's, and it's very interesting, but IBM primarily works on cancer. And I think that this is something that, um, you know, it's really lacking in these sort of like high prescription volume, you know, sort of conditions like heart disease or, you know, 
diabetes. So I think that like, while this is very exciting, this is definitely a sort of a technology and a, you know, a space for artificial intelligence where it really needs to be expanded and there's a lot of room to grow. How far away are we from being able, so we can sequence a genome for $1,000. How far away are we from having enough of that data that we get really good insights into a person has this combination of genetic markers and therefore this is more likely to work or not work. I know that in isolated cases we can do that, but when will we see that become um, just kind of how we do things on a day-to-day -day basis? I would say um, probably 25 years from the clinic or maybe, yeah. I mean, it's great. This information is really um, interesting and you know, we can do it, but again, it's not widely used. So I think, there are too many regulations in place right now that keep this from being ha happening. So I think it's going to be, like I said, maybe 25 years before we really see this very widely used for a good number of patients. So are there, are there initiatives underway that you think merit support that allow this information to be collected and used in ways that promote the greater good and simultaneously protect the privacy of the patients? So, How can we start collecting better data? Yeah, there's a lot of people that are working on this, um, that are working on this type of thing. Actually, for example, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of, for example, o Obama had some precision, uh, a precision medicine initiative and these types of things where you're really trying to, um, like I said, uh, basically get your health records um, and your genomic data and everything all consolidated and have a very sort of easy flow of information so that, you know, doctors can easily integrate information from many sources and have very complete patient profiles. And so this is a, and, and so this is a thing that's um, currently underway. So to, to, to pull out a little bit and look at the larger world, uh, you're obviously deep involved in speech and language processing and healthcare and all of these kind of areas where we see lots of advances happening on a regular basis. It's very exciting. What, but then there's a lot of concern from people who uh, worry. I mean, you know, this is two big worries. One is that the effect that all of this technology is going to have on employment. Do you have, uh, and there's two, two views, one is that it's more technology, which increases productivity, which increases wages, and that's what's happened for 200 years, or this technology is somehow different, it replaces people, and anything a person could do, eventually the technology will be able to do. Which of those camps do you, or, or a third camp, I don't know, do you fall into? What, what is your prognosis for the future of, of work? Right. Um, I think that technology is a good thing. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm seeing, although I know a lot of people have concerns, for example, that having, you know, for example, if it's too much artificial intelligence, it'll replace my job, it will do this, it will, you know, there won't be room, room for me and what I do. But I think that what's actually going to happen in, is instead of having, you know, what we're just going to see is a, shall we say, a shifting employment landscape. Um, 
like I said, you know, maybe if we have some sort of general intelligence, then people can start, you know, worrying. But right now, what we're really doing is through our artificial intelligence is really augmenting human intelligence. So although some jobs become obsolete, now to maintain these systems, build these systems, I believe that you actually have now more opportunities there. For example, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there wasn't such a demand for people with, you know, software engineering skills. Um, and now, you know, it's almost becoming something that you're expected to know, or like, you know, the internet 30 years back. So I really think that this is going to be a good thing for society and that, you know, it may be, it may be hard for people who, you know, don't have, let's just say, any sort of computer skills, but I think going forward that these are going to be much more important. Do you consume science fiction? Do you watch movies and or read books or television? And if so, are there are there science fiction universes that you look at and think that's kind of how I see the future unfolding? Um, have you ever seen the the TV show Black Mirror? Well, yeah, that's dystopian though. You were just saying <laughs> things are going to be good. I thought you were just saying jobs are good, we're all good, technology's good. Black Mirror is like dark, black, mirror-ish. Yeah, no, that, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but I think, you know, that's presenting sort of the evil side of what can happen. I don't think that's necessarily realistic, but I think the way, you know, I think that show actually does a very good job of just portraying the way that, for example, um, that technology could really be integrated into our lives. That's kind of like you know, without, without all of that dystopian sort of, you know, depressing stories. But I think that the way that it shows the technology being integrated into the lives, how it affects the way people live, I think it does a very good job of doing things like that. I, I wonder, though, science fiction is, well, movies and TV are notoriously dystopian because there's more drama in that than utopian. Of course, of course. Um, and so it's not, it's not... Right, conspiratorial or anything. I'm not asserting that. But I do think that what it does, perhaps, is causes people, somebody termed it uh, generalizing from fictional evidence, that you see enough views of the future like that, you think, oh, that's how it's going to happen. Um, right. And that that, therefore, becomes self-fulfilling. Frank Herbert, I think it was, who said, um, sometimes the purpose of science fiction is to keep a world from happening. Mm -hmm. uh, so do you, do you think those kinds of views of the world are good or do you think that they increase this collective worry about technology and losing our humanity becoming in a world that that's that's blackish and mirrorish you know right no i i understand your point and actually i agree i think there is a lot of fear um which is quite unwar unwarranted um you know, there is actually a lot more transparency in AI now. So I think that a lot of those fears are just, I don't know. I, I think that especially, you know, given the media today, I'm sure we're all aware, it's a lot of fear mongering. But I think that these fears are really something that, you know, not to say there will be no negative impacts, but I think, you know, everything has, you know, every cloud has its silver lining. I think that really this is not something that anyone really needs to be worrying about. And one thing that I think is really important is to have more education for a general audience. Um, so that, you know, I think part of the, part of the fear comes from not really understanding, um, you know, what AI is, what it does, how it works.
Um, right. And so I was just kind of thinking through what you were saying. The, um, there's a, a, an initiative in Europe that AI engines and kind of like the one that you're talking about suggesting things need to be transparent in the sense they need to be able to explain why they are making that suggestion. But right. when I read one of your papers on deep neural nets and, and it talks about how the, the results are hard to understand if, if not impossible to understand. Which side of that do you come down on? Is, is, should we limit the technology to things that can be kind of explained in, in, in bulleted points? Or do we say, no, the data is the data and you're ne we're never going to understand it but once it starts combining in these ways and we just need to be okay with that. Right. So, you know, I know that, of course, you know, one of the, one of the most overused phrases in all of AI is that neural networks are a black box. Um, I'm sure we're all sick of hearing that sentence, but it's kind of true. And so, you know, I think that's why I was interested in sort of researching this topic. And I think, you know, as you were saying before, the why, the why, the why in AI is very, very important. Um, so I think that, you know, as you, as you mentioned, you know, of course we can benefit from AI without knowing, you know, we can, we can continue to use it like a black box. It'll still be useful. It'll still be important, but I think it will be far more impactful if, you are able to explain why and to really kind of demystify what's happening. So for example, um, one, one good example actually from our own, you know, my own company is that, for example, in medicine, it's vital for the doctor to know why you're saying what you're saying um, at Droice. So for example, um, if a patient comes in and you say, I think this person is going to have a very negative reaction to this medicine, it's very, very vital for us to try to analyze the neural network and explain, okay, it's really this feature of, you know, this person's health record, for example, the fact that they're quite old and on another medication that really makes, um, that really makes them trust the system and, you know, really, really eases the adoption and allows them to integrate into, you know, traditionally non but to say less, um, less like technologically focused fields. Um, so I think that, you know, there's a lot of research now that's going into the why in AI. Um, and there is, you know, it's one of my focuses of research. And I know it's like the field has been really blooming in the last couple of years, because I think people are realizing that this is extremely important and will help us not only, you know, make artificial intelligence more translational, but also help us to make better models. You know, in The Empire Strikes Back, uh, when Luke is training on Dagobah with Yoda, he asks him why, why something, and Yoda's like, there is no why, there is no why. <laughs> Do you think there are situations where there is no why? There is no, there is no explainable reason why it chose what it did that... Um, well, <laughs> Uh, I, th I think that there is, you know, I think there is always a reason, you know, for example, you like ice cream. Well, maybe it's a silly reason, but the reason is that it tastes good. It might not be, you know, you like pistachio better than, uh, let's say caramel flavor. I mean, <laughs> let's just say the reason may not be logical, but there is a reason, right? It's because it activates the pleasure center in your brain when you, <clears throat> when you do that. So I think that, you know, 
if you're looking for interpretability, um, in some cases it could be limited, but I think there's always something that you could answer with when asking why. All right. Well, this has been fascinating. If people want to follow you, um, keep up with what you're doing, keep up with Joyce, can you just run through the litany of, of ways to do that? Um, yeah, so we have a Twitter account. It's uh, Joyce Labs, D-R-O-I-C-E-L-A-B-S. And that's mo mostly where we post. And we also have a website, JoyceLabs.com, and that's where we post most of, our, most of the updates that we have. All right. Well, it has been a wonderful and far-ranging hour, and I just want to thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, I host another podcast about artificial intelligence. It's a daily podcast called The AI Minute. And every day, it's a minute or two of reflections about artificial intelligence. It's available wherever you find your podcasts of choice. But in addition, it's an Alexa skill, so it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.